You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by the new CSB Men of Character Bible. I just want to say a quick word about the CSB translation. I've come to really enjoy it and uh, use it in my preaching and my personal devotional time. I love both its accuracy, but also the readability, uh, particularly as you go through the Old Testament. Well, this new Men of Character Bible, uh, CSB Men of Character Bible, is uh, edited by renowned Bible teacher, Dr. Gene Getz. And uh, he guides men through scripture by exploring the lives of men of character uh, found throughout the Bible. If you have a man in your life that you'd like to get a new study Bible, maybe a good gift ahead of a Father's Day, this would be a great gift. It is full of character profiles of some of the most worthy examples of godly character in scripture, of biblical figures who brought leadership, wisdom, and inspiration uh, to God's people. Each of these men faced trials, frustrations, and even failure, and yet were empowered by God to persevere and achieve great things for His glory. Uh, This would be a great gift for the man in your life, the CSB Men of Character Bible. If you go to lifeway.com during the month of May, you can get it for 40% off, which is a great discount. So go to lifeway.com and get the Men of Character Bible at 40% off. We want to thank the good friends at the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, for sponsoring this episode of The Way Home. Hello and welcome to The Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining me today. I am excited about uh, the conversation and the guests that are going to be on the show today. I'm invited my good friend, uh, Colin Hansen, who is executive editor at the Gospel Coalition and is a well-known author and writer, has been a personal friend and mentor to me over the years, Uh, and his colleague, Sarah Zalstra, who is a journalist uh, who has worked for Christianity Today, who also uh, now does journalism for the Gospel Coalition. Both of Co- both Colin and Sarah are journalists, both graduated from Northwestern University. And uh, I wanted to have them on to talk about their brand new book, Gospel Bound, which I have read and finished and was so encouraged by. And we talk about the tendency to be very cynical as a Christian in this age. We're so catechized by bad headlines about the church, bad headlines about Christians behaving badly, about scandal, corruption. And we don't want to minimize the awfulness of that or the impact of leaders who have fallen, who have not led well. Uh, But there's kind of a narrative out there that everything in Christianity is bad, everything's terrible. And what they have done with this book and what Sarah has done with her reporting is show where God is moving and working around the world. It's such an encouragement, your faith, to see that God is at work in this age through his Holy Spirit, uh, drawing people to himself and also mobilizing the church to meet real human needs around the world. And they walk through with me several uh, stories of that. They talk about reporting. They talk about uh, reading the news in a digital age. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. Uh, conversation. So pull up a chair wherever you are, if you're in your car, if you're uh, doing chores or in the house, if you're exercising, you want to listen to this. But before you do, I just would like to tell you about 
uh, a special uh, offer that we have here on the podcast. Uh, as you know, I'm Senior Vice President of the National Religious Broadcasters, which is an association of Christian communicators, and we have our big convention coming up June 21st to the 24th in Texas. It's at the Gaylord Texan in Grapevine, Texas. There, We're very excited. We have uh, a lot of folks coming like Paula Ferris, who worked for ABC News. Uh, Mark Job is the president of Moody Bible Institute. Tony Evans, who you've heard preach on the radio. Uh, Dallas Jenkins, who's the executive director and producer of The Chosen, along with so many other communicators. If you are a Christian communicator of any kind, if you're a podcaster, if you're a writer, if you are a Bible teacher, if you just want to figure out how to communicate better, or if you're maybe concerned about some of the challenges that Christian communicators might face on some of the platforms and how we can think through uh, platform censorship, religious liberty, all those issues, uh, or perhaps you work in church media and you have helped lead your church uh, during this COVID year, pivoting to digital uh, content in a quick way, and you'd like to improve that, we have a lot of workshops and a lot of training, a lot of networking for people who are doing digital ministry in their churches. If all any of that's you, we'd love for you to come and join us. And we have a special code for podcast listeners. Uh, if you go to nrbconvention.org and you register and you use the code WAYHOME, that's WAYHOME, 21 way home 21 if you use that code you can get $50 off uh, convention registration you'll want to do it by May 21st because there's a bit of a price jump after that but the the coupon code the special code will work uh, up until the convention but we'd love to see you in June that's nrbconvention.org join me and several other friends as we talk about how to communicate in this digital age okay let's join our conversation now with my friends Colin Hansen and Sarah Zellstra Well, I'm glad to have on the podcast uh, two really good friends of mine, Colin Hansen, who is a repeat visitor here. <laughs> Sarah, like I always pronounce your last name Zilstra, but it, but I've been listening to Gospel Bound and it's it's pronounced differently. So it please is. correct me on that. It's Zylstra. Think like Zylstra. xylophone. It's a long okay. I sound. I can do that. So Sarah yeah. Zylstra. So I wanted to have you out to talk about a number of things, but you have a brand new book called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. Yeah, I just want to talk about journalism a little bit, stories, the age we live in. I really enjoy this, this book and this project. One of the things that is just really, I, I've been noticing the last couple of years is that it, I almost feel like we are incentivized to only gravitate toward negative news, right? Uh, particularly news about the church. And there's been a lot to to gravitate towards, right? A lot of scandal, you know, a lot of misbehavior and all of those things, alarming trends. So this is refreshing to say that God is still at work uh, here in this age. So maybe explain a little bit the genesis behind the book. Like what what motivated you both to come together to do this? Well, I think, and in, in thanks for having us, Dan. Um I think the concept is really seen in the title, which might not be obvious at first glance, but when you think of the sense of being bound, there are two different movements. One of the movement is being is holding fast. So think of being bound to something that doesn't move, something that keeps you steady 
in the midst of the storm. And so the, the world might be raging around us. The, the nations rage like a hurricane. But the gospel of Jesus Christ holds us steady in the middle of that. There's also a sense, like in Romans 15, 13, of abounding in hope. You're bounding forward because we know how the story ends. We know where we're going. We're not just sort of hunkering down in the middle of that storm, but we're leaning in to that storm. We're pressing forward in the middle of that through the power of the gospel. And so that sense of standing fast, even as we're propelled forward in Christ, is really the organizing principle for the book as we illustrate that principle, not only through the book of Romans, but then with examples of Christians around the world who are doing this, who are living with resolute hope in an anxious age. And it's uh, just very encouraging to us. And you're right, Dan, that so much of what we see now is discouraging. We could talk about all the reasons for those incentives, but I don't think it gives us a, a full or accurate picture of what God is doing and what God's people are doing right now. And so all the way from house churches in China to uh, multi-ethnic churches in Iowa to working in strip clubs in Louisville to try to help people trapped up in the sex industry to the Southern Baptist Convention. I know, Dan, one of your big themes is the Southern Baptist Convention. They don't get a lot of attention for their relief work. And I think actually your, I think it was your inspiration of why Sarah and I looked into that in the first place. Uh, that's not what gets the headlines, but the Southern Baptist Convention is the third largest relief agency in the United States, which people just don't know about. And so we just have to ask the question, are we feeling really discouraged and anxious about the world right now? In part because we just don't have the full picture of what's happening. And that's our, that's our conviction in this book that that is the case. We don't know all that's happening. I think we'd have, a, we would be abounding in hope if we knew more of it. I like that. And one of the things I love about the work that you you do, Sarah, for TGC is you tell those stories, um, profiles of great ministries, stories that are really, really fascinating. Because I think, um, I just been thinking about this a lot, particularly this year. It's almost like we're so catechized by the bad. And, and again, I don't want to dismiss at all any of the important coverage of scandal, of abuse. I mean, like we can't hide that stuff. We need to be transparent. And I'm glad that there's good reporting on that, but I feel like we're catechized daily by every, you know, by this idea that the church is just hopelessly gone astray and it's doing all the wrong things. And so we can get this idea that God is actually not at work in this age, that maybe he was at work in another age, maybe when Billy Graham was filling stadiums, or maybe when D.L. Moody was filling stadiums, or maybe during the great revivals that Colin has written about. But it's interesting, if you were to drop into one of those eras, I bet you would talk to Christians who felt the same way as they do today, right? So Sarah, what is it about wanting to tell these good stories? I mean, you're a journalist. Do you almost have to cut against, like be countercultural, even in your journalism and doing this, that you're not, you may have to report on scandal, but you're not just sniffing for scandal all the time. You're trying to t tell good stories. Oh yeah. I think that's definitely true. I think back, back even when Colin first said a couple years ago, want to come and 
and write stories for the gospel coalition. We're going to tell good stories. And I was like, well, that sounds like PR. That just sounds like puffiness, unless it's bad. Is it even journalism? Um, but, but, um, what I love about it, I feel like it is really true and, and sometimes better journalism because it's fresh. I don't see a lot of fresh reporting in journalism these days. It's a lot of rehashed one thing happens and then every news outlet takes, does it, you know, hands another take on it or reports it with just using slightly different words or worse, just monitoring Twitter. Yes. Right. Or and just Twitter. writing about what's happened, what, what people said on Twitter. That's a really popular genre these days. It yes. is. It's, it's easy to do and it's cheap. So there's a lot of reporting on that. So I love that this is fresh. And I also love that it's gritty. Um, we, we tell the whole story, even the parts where there's failure or things didn't feel like they were going right or God didn't feel present. So yeah, it, you do have to kind of cut against the grain a little bit. You know, one of the things I love about what you're doing though at Gospel Coalition is say, yeah, we're, we don't like this trend either. So we're going to do something different. Like we have a platform. We can tell sto- good stories about the church. Um, and so I'm curious if you've gotten response. I'm sure you do from people that are saying like, this is really refreshing to hear. And one of the things I like a, a, about the storytelling that you're doing, Sarah, is, I mean, obviously, um, Gospel Coalition is reformed, broadly reformed, you know, and in, 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 in they're fun. But you're telling stories from across all the traditions of Christianity or of evangelicalism about some of these great movements and these great things that God is doing um, that in a way that I think can be unifying. Yeah, I, I think, Dan, that um, you're not going to make a lot of progress of advancing your church, your own theological position, your political views, unless you model for people an alternative that's better than what they currently know, unless you show them a better story, a better outcome, better fruit from the gospel. And so I don't, I know you can build a movement, you can build a church, you can build a a fundraising platform much quicker by essentially saying I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And I'm going to spend all of my time talking why everybody else is wrong. But I don't think that's healthy for Christians. I don't think it's good for the long term for that ministry. And so one of the things we believe in strongly through our editorial team at the Gospel Coalition is that a lot of times you make more progress by showing rather than telling. So we don't want to just go around and wag our fingers at everybody and say, we're so much smarter and insightful and biblical and all that kind of stuff. But we want to say, hey, this is a beautiful vision for what this theology can be lived out. And also reformed people don't have a corner on the market of, of, uh, of good churches or of healthy uh, Christianity. And um, certainly we have our own problems as well. So I just like also, Dan, the outward focus on things. That's another, ver- another value of the gospel culture, at least something that we try to do. We don't spend a lot of time obsessing over who's in and out and up and down with the evangelical movement. We really are more about representing the best of that evangelical movement and how we're reaching out into the world and how we're trying to evangelize and engage our neighbors and things like that. So that's a lot of what this what this book really is. We, we believe that being gospel-bound means that the best way, in fact, the only way for the church to move forward together through all the difficulties that we face now 
is by getting back to the gospel. So you don't actually make all the progress because you focus on the problems. It's often focusing together on Christ that he draws us together and equips us and strengthens us to be able to overcome those problems together. And we don't ever run into problems in this world when we have too much Bible or too much Jesus. Um, that's, never the, that's never the problem. It's because we may profess with our mouths but not believe in our hearts. Um, and we may, we may believe the truth, but we may not obey the truth. And so we don't believe in, in simply um, correcting everybody, but also giving them a model for what this can look like. Like I said before, um, more showing and not always just telling. Yeah, I, I love that. And what, what I love about the format of this book is that you're, you're walking through Romans, some key passages, and then you're saying, okay, here's what it looks like to be a Christian in the world. And then you're saying, okay, who, who's doing this? Who, who's out there doing it and finding examples? And one of the things I try to tell a lot of folks, I mean, I have this thesis and I'm curious what you think about it, but I feel like, you know, Twitter, whereas a lot of the people like us hang out who are kind of in the thought world, uh, writing, speaking, you know, leading organizations is kind of like a big green room. Right. I feel like Twitter is like the green room at like catalyst or something. Um, but then when you go into your churches, when I go to church, I mean, most of the people in my church don't know the last 15 controversies that happened and you just find regular people trying to serve Christ the best they can doing and some people doing some really amazing work here and around the world. And uh, I like that aspect of what you're doing in this book to say, yeah, there's, there's these conversations over here, but really God is doing some amazing things through the church around the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just such a very small percentage of people, even in Twitter, and then an even smaller percentage of them tweeting all the time. So you're really looking at just the very smallest fraction of, you know, how people are experiencing life. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about journalism too, in the age of the internet. Um, you know, Colin and I, we've, we've, we've talked a lot about we're all around the same age. We're more digital immigrants, I would say, right? Our kids are digital natives. You know, I remember in some ways the internet's helpful, right? For me coming out of a kind of more of a fundamentalist background, it was really helpful. The Gospel Coalition was an oasis. I remember starting to see it happen, form. And then I went to the 2011 conference and I'm looking around saying, man, where's this been my whole life? Here's, <laughs> here's a bunch of young guys who care about expository preaching, care about doctrine, they buy books, but hey, they're wearing jeans and they can, <laughs> they, they listen, they can listen to like you too, and they can go to movies, you know, it was cool. <laughs> so, you know, the internet, it's interesting. Like I remember the very first, first like things like Christianity Today's weblog, if you remember that back in the day, of course, I would read that and it was encouraging, like, okay, here's what's going around around the world. Here's what the God is doing in the church. And so it can be helpful, but it's also kind of flattened a lot of things, right? So maybe just talk about that aspect of, of doing ministry, but also journalism in this digital age. Well, you know, it's, the, uh, it's quite a conceit for us who all make our living off the internet and are talking right now, thanks to the internet, right. uh, to criticize <laughs> um, and bite the hand that feeds us. But what we try to do with Journalism at the Gospel Coalition is take people who meet on the internet and push them back 
into their local lives. So one of the concepts we introduce in this book is, is thinking big and small at the same time. So thinking big about where history is headed with Christ's return, with an eternity, with God, but thinking small about the change that you can affect through the power of the Spirit in your family, in your neighborhood, and in your church. And I think that's the best way to use the internet. Uh, It's a great place to get connected to different people, to be exposed to different ideas, to learn new things. I don't know what I would do without it, but it's a really bad place to live. It's a very unhealthy place to live. I would have a hard time doing my job without Twitter, but I don't know that you can be spiritually healthy and spend a lot of time on Twitter because there's something about the medium that is not neutral. There's something about the medium that seems to demand critique and argument and strong opinions that may or may not be backed up. And just being exposed to all of that all the time so quickly, I don't think we're designed that way as, as, uh, as Christians to be healthy, as humans to be healthy, in the same way that I don't think if you watched cable news or listened to talk radio all day, that you would actually end up being a happier or even in some ways a more informed person. I think in some ways you would you'd certainly be less spiritually healthy but you would also be more informed about the things that are really sort of uh, attention grabbing and polemical, but not the things that are necessarily the most important. For example, uh, I noticed recently a survey of coverage showing that the like Republicans were far more informed on Dr. Seuss than they were informed about the the stimulus package. Mm. And I thought, what a good example of that, because media know it's not like it's not like journalists are objective, unbiased sources. They are engaged in a business. And if they know that you care more about Dr. Seuss than about the arcane details of a one point eight trillion dollar infrastructure plan or something like that, then they're not going to perform some sort of um, public service that will get them out of a job. They're going to focus on Dr. Seuss. Now, is Dr. Seuss the most important thing happening in the world at that moment? I mean, I don't think anybody would argue that that's the case, but we spend a good week or before that, Mr. Potato Head. I mean, gosh, how many words were spoken about Mr. Potato Head there? I just think as Christians, if we're not very concerted about pushing back against that media culture that is especially pronounced through the internet age, then we're going to wither spiritually, or we have withered spiritually already. And Sarah knows this for my whole staff at the Gospel Coalition. We are not doing our jobs if we're spending most of our time on social media. For us, it's all about books and people. If we're spending time with books and spending time with people, then we're able to do our jobs as digital journalists, but not if we're spending most of our time actually on the internet. Yeah, I think, yeah, I was just, you know, as I'm, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about how when I used to, at the beginning of my career, I don't know, 20 years ago, go to city council meetings and go to school board meetings and, and like meet people in real life and speak with them and how gradually more and more, like there wasn't the money for that. Um, 
And then the, all the offices, um, I was working for a suburban Chicago paper, all the offices got moved downtown. So now the paper's not even reported or produced anywhere near the suburbs that it's covering. And so it's just been sort of a, a move, a shift from being in person to now our lives are so disembodied, like you're, you are who you put forward online. Um, and like Colin's saying too, the more time you spend there, that becomes sort of your reality. Um, only it's not a reality. And uh, yeah, navigating all of that, I think our richest pieces have come for sure from issues that we see in real life. Those Twitter issues, they, you know, Mr. Potato Head or Dr. Seuss or whoever is, is yelling, those aren't real issues. If you talk to pastors who are on the ground, especially in under-resourced neighborhoods, their people don't care about what's happening on Twitter. Um, that's not where the real needs are. So I think yeah, a shift back sort of maybe to that old school embodied reporting um, is where our richest stuff comes. I like that. Um, and it, it seems like th this is one of the things I'm constantly saying is that, yeah, there's a lot of problems within evangelicalism. There's a lot of things to discuss. But man, like most evangelicals and most Christians, if you just want to broaden it out a little, zoom out a little bit. God is doing some amazing work through people around the world. And, and I love the, the, just, if you look around and go local, there, there seems like a, just a perverse incentive, even on the religion beat, a lot of journalists I've really good friends with, but I just feel like there's this persistent perverse incentive to, to always write the same story, just with different details. <laughs> so uh, I love that you did this. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about some of the stories you talk about. Um, I want to model what this book is saying and not just be negative. So I'm going <laughs> to, I want to pivot to some of these <laughs> stories. You profile a number of folks, but I love you. You have a chapter on international justice mission and some of the work they do. What was it about IJM that really uh, excited you and, and made you want to kind of talk about the story, particularly in the, in the chapter about um, I believe it's about caring for the weak. Yeah. That was such a good one. I can't remember how it even first started. Colin, maybe you do. I don't know. Well, I think I think it was, I mean, we, we love the work that IJM is doing and they have reformed theological roots and all that kind of stuff. And I think we, we've always wanted to talk about what they're doing, but to your point, Dan, it's a little bit hard to write a story that people will watch or read that says IJM's doing awesome stuff. It feels like that PR. So what happened, and Sarah can get in and talk about the details, is when we when we started talking to them, and I think, Sarah, you reached out, and they said, yeah, we're actually seeing a lot of success, but we're struggling right now because even as we're ending a lot of this sex slavery, we're seeing it morph into something worse and uh, even more pernicious. I think that was when we all of a sudden said, whoa, okay. How do you persevere as a Christian when it feels like for every one problem you eradicate, you create four new ones? Yeah. So this was their work in the Philippines and they had seen tremendous success. Um, they were really going after child prostitution. And so they were, and they were, so what they did was they came in, they're sort of a holistic, um, they were working with the law enforcement in order to get the um, guys put behind bars. They were working with the stigma of it and like just trying as best they could to get these kids off the street. And they have just seen enormous success. Um, lots and lots of kids rescued and, and it was super exciting and good news. And then just as they were sort of celebrating that, like, yes, we're doing great. Um, they, they 
noticed, this is like when the age of the internet really started getting going and they would, they noticed that now their law enforcement was dealing with, they would get a call from a Western government that would say, Hey, we just, you know, caught a person and charged him with child pedophilia. And we are looking at pictures on his computer that have come from your country. So children in the Philippines are being trafficked only now. It's just not on the street corner anymore. So you can't see them. Now they're online. Um, and what that means is it's happening inside their homes. And what that means is it's their parents and their relatives who are trafficking them for extra money, um, which is just about, I mean, it just turned our stomach. We could hardly believe it when you think about um, uh, the position that you must be in to do that to your child. And also that they weren't doing it for like food because these are families that had the internet access and electronic devices. They were doing, they're doing it for extra money, which really felt like an extra blow. So, um, and to IJM as well, who then had to pivot um, and is now working with those. They said, now we have to work a lot more with foster care because you're rescuing kids that are a lot younger and a lot of sibling groups and a lot more boys. And so now they they're still there. They're just working in a totally different way. Their churches have stepped up to help with this. Um, they're getting into adoption and foster care, and it's just um, they're still they're working with an even darker and grosser problem. Um, but they're they haven't given up, and they certainly didn't pack up and go home. So that was um, the fact that God that they say God is with us in this and walking us through this was yeah. certainly hopeful for us. Yeah, and just an example of. You know, I, I love when I think about IJM, one of the things just having known some other people too, that they really, they really um, emphasize the spiritual disciplines, you know, and the activism part, like it's, it's both, they, they don't separate those two things, but also here are Christians saying, here's a problem in the world. Uh, God is sending us to be part of that solution. And we're just going to do it. We're, we're going to forget the noise and forget all the conversations and all the controversy. We're just going to step in and, and do that. And what a, what a great story that is. You also talked about, um, I believe it's Graham Steins, I think, uh, yeah. the missionary. Oh, wasn't that, that a terrible story? Yeah. In India, but about the ability to forgive enemies in a way that, you know, is otherworldly and it can only be explained by the Christian faith. So talk about writing that story as well. Yeah. Um, her name was Gladys and she was married to a guy named Graham. They were from Australia and they um, went to India to be missionaries. And they worked with, um, a leper, like leper people with leprosy there, I think. Um, and then, and they would, would also, he would go once a year to a conference and he would speak about Jesus too. I'm not sure he was a pastor. I think he was like administrating the, um, leper colony, but he would also speak about Jesus. And so they went, they, he took two of his sons, I think they were nine and seven to a conference with him way out in the bush and they slept in their car because there was no hotels. So that's how they would do it. And in the middle of the night, um, some Hindu nationalists came and um, blocked the doors so they couldn't get out and lit the car on fire and, you know, were just uh, slashed the tires so they couldn't get away uh, and burned this, this man, this missionary and his two young sons to death in this car, um, which is truly the most, I mean, it just turns, it's just horrific. Um, and then her friends had to tell her. And so she was left with her 14 year old daughter and they, um, forgave. I have never seen, um, 
I've never seen something like this. Like they, she forgave him and didn't even track really the trial. This, the guy who was responsible, primarily responsible for it was loose for like a year, maybe more even. Um, and she just gave it all to the Lord completely and focus and continued to work there, um, and continued to give to the hospital there and, um, and gave her life to them in a, just such a remarkable way. And if you talk to her, she doesn't carry the bitterness of it. She's just very sort of down to earth and practical and, um, and making her way certainly through great pain, um, but also with her eyes on Jesus and on a future with, with her family when they can be reunited. That's such a, such a powerful uh, testimony. You, you talk, when you talk about forgiveness, you talk about that story, but also about the Charleston nine, you know, in uh, that tragic story, but that powerful example of forgiveness. You talk a lot about John Perkins too, and his sort of, you know, redemptive bridge building work that he's done for decades. And so uh, how did the, how did that encourage you even as you're researching these, these stories? Yeah, it's just so interesting to see. And I'll tell you this, I think you're right about when you talk about being catechized by negative news headlines over and over again, you start to feel that's what the world looks like. Um, but I think on the other side, when I read, so I've spent four years now telling these stories over and over again, and I feel like my heart is catechized the other way. Like I'm just so encouraged and my faith has been built so much by watching God show up over and over and over and over again, um, that I just feel pretty rock solid in my assurance that he's going to show up again. Um, and again and again, because I've seen it happen. And so I think for myself, it has been enormously encouraging um, and faith strengthening. Colin, is this a bit of a theme for you too? Because I remember when you wrote that book with John Woodbridge on revival, mm -hmm. I read that when it first came out. And I, I just remember being so fired up and encouraged to say, why can't God do this again? Um, and when I read stories like this to say, yeah, we are in a tough age, uh, you know, there's, and, and you kind of allude to this in the final chapter, but we're at a tough age in the West. We're facing increasing pressure for holding on to Orthodox Christian beliefs. Some are falling away. Some are going, you know, becoming angry. There's a lot to lament. And yet there's still work to do. And God is working today in this age. Is this kind of a theme? It's kind of a running theme for, for your work. Yeah. Well, this is one area where you and I overlap, Dan, and that's uh, through my time at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Mm -hmm. So there were two pivotal moments for me during those years. So one of them was talking with one of my mentors, John Woodbridge. And my plan was when I was in seminary to write a book called 1976, the year that changed evangelicals. And I was going to look at the ecclesiological, political, and theological developments of a splintering evangelical movement all revolving around the 19, year 1976. That's the Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford election. Mm -hmm. That's the battle of the Bible on inerrancy. It's the rise of what would become Willow Creek, uh, secret sensitive movements, homogeneous unit principle, uh, rise of uh, psychology and counseling, all that kind of stuff. And I talked with John about it and he said, well, Colin, you could do that. But what if instead you talked about God working in power and encourage people to say, maybe we don't see him working that way today because we don't ask him to work that way again. Mm -hmm. And so that propelled me on a whole different journey. And then in another different class, uh, through a couple of my other um, 
mentors at seminary through Doug Sweeney and, and Scott Manich there, um, I was able to discover something called the Christian History Magazine. It was the first religious periodical in America. It ran from 19, or excuse me, 1743 to 1745, published out of Boston by Thomas Prince Sr. and Jr. But it was actually inspired by Jonathan Edwards. It was a new light project. And Jonathan Edwards had seen his earlier um, uh, account of the Northampton Revival, a surprising narrative where he writes about um, his local setting. He'd seen that spark revivals across the Atlantic and across the colonies. And he deduced from that, that one of the means God employs to be able to spread revival is by sharing news of revival because it prompts God's people to humble themselves Mm. and to pray and to ask him to work in that way in their midst. And so he wanted to be able to use religious periodicals to be able to do that. And there was a strong transatlantic newspaper um, environment that was rising at the time. Well, Dan, just think of the possibilities we have now with the internet to do the same thing. So you're very right to be able to deduce that this is for me something of um, my life's calling. And I'm just really blessed to be able to work with. Sarah, who I think is the best writer out there on writing these feature stories, um, just have not seen anybody who can match her God-given abilities on this. And so, I, I mean, I have like a standing invitation, both of us do, to any other journalists who want to be a part of this cause. This is not about this is not about telling untruths or half truths. This is all about being uh, being gritty, but also. Through the gritty, you find the glory. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what you've just heard from Sarah. Through the when you're sifting through the gritty, you find the glory when you're looking for it. And so that's that's our again, yeah, that's really our calling. The, the storytelling has a catalyzing effect, right? It, and it always has in the history of the Christian Church. I mean, think about when I was a kid reading missionary stories or reading about uh, Corey Ten Boom or uh, Bonhoeffer, all these folks, and it has a catalyzing effect and i do feel like if we don't tell the stories we can't depend on other people to do it like i'm i wish mainstream media told more of these and there are pockets of folks who are doing that well so i don't want to diss on every journalist because i think some of them are doing some really good work but we, we we need to tell the stories ourselves um about that you talked a little bit colin about the splintering of the of the movement and i wanted to kind of tease out something we, we've been talking i've been talking about with a lot of, of friends and stuff that we seem to be in a moment very similar to not identical, but similar to the 1920s where, um, and I think I heard, and I heard this like third hand about something Tim Keller said. So if it's wrong, <laughs> don't blame Keller, blame me. Cause I, uh, <laughs> not good journalist principles. I didn't go to the <laughs> first source. So. Um, but we seem to be kind of in a movement where, um, you know, in the 1920s, obviously the, the presenting issue was inerrancy, right? It was uh, inerrancy, orthodoxy. You had this sort of fundamentalist, modernist controversy. Those pressures on the church where some went left and, you know, denied the core doctrines of scripture, inerrancy and all that. Some went very hard right in a kind of fundamentalist mode where rather than kind of fighting the heresy, they were, it's kind of, it was kind of a, heresy heresy hunting right um and purity tests and all that stuff 
not to oversimplify, it seems like the same thing's happening now, but the presenting issue being sexual ethics, right? Where some are falling away and embracing heterodoxy. Some are going sort of in a, in a very quasi-fundamentalist mode of nobody's pure, nobody's right, except for us. Um, and attacking people who are orthodox, who are actually making the case for orthodoxy, but are not anyways. So it seems like there's a, there's a call again, a renewed call to do like what Carl Henry was trying to do and hold that center, right? To say we're faithful, orthodox, we're holding to this, you know, that broad center. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Am I off on that kind of? I think it's, uh, maybe, maybe Keller had said it, but where I heard it uh, more directly was from Carson, from Don Carson. Mm -hmm. And so when the Gospel Coalition first came together, the group that would become the Gospel Coalition, it was 2005. I'm sure you remember that time, Dan, it was right after the famous values voter election. It was actually the last time a Republican had ever won the popular vote. Uh, It was a widespread um, opposition to same-sex marriage among voters across the country. That would continue all the way past 2008. Remember, 2008, California. Um, It was really a very different time that's hard to explain, I think, to some people today. But in 2005, Don Carson gave an account of evangelicalism from World War II to the present and said, what we're looking at right now is homosexuality as akin to the issue of indulgences in the 16th century, by which he meant it was not the issue itself. The Reformation was not fought over indulgences. And the current Reformation is not being fought over homosexuality specifically. It's being fought over a whole connected series of issues that ultimately boil down to the authority of God and the authority of God's word. And so the Reformation ultimately is a similar as that, that formal principle of where's your authority from? Is it, is it in Rome or is it in God's word? Similarly now, is it in the subjective experience or is it in God's word? And, and we're going to see, as Carson said, we're going to see an entire split of at least the Western church uh, because of this issue. And clearly he was correct. Uh, He was correct when you look at the current split happening in the Methodist church and the previous splits in the Evangelical Lutheran church and in the PC USA and the Episcopal church and the splintering of global Anglicanism. All of this has has happened. The only thing I I would change in there, Dan, is that I would add another parallel, which is the 1830s and the 1840s. And that was another major split, not in the entire Western church, but specifically within the United States. And you had the splintering there of the Northern and Southern Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches, and Baptist churches. And to, for the, well, the Presbyterians have gotten back together and the Methodists have gotten back together, but the Southern Baptists and Northern Baptists, of course, never did get back together. And that splinter was over racial issues. And so the challenge for us right now is that we are splintered along along both sexual and racial issues, but not in the same ways. So it's more like this grid. There's a horizontal, a vertical axis. It's more, it's just, it's far more complicated. It's not just good guys over here, bad guys over here. It is a, is a mixture. Sometimes the most helpful person 
or a helpful person that you might agree with on a sexual issue is completely wrong on a racial issue from your perspective and vice versa. It's very confusing. And so we are seeing a splintering and I don't really know how it is going to sort out because the defining issue that I think is going, I mean, I agree with Carson about the sexual issues. When you go all the way back to the first century, the second century, sexual issues have always been as a matter of orthodoxy for Christians and orthopraxy, of course, for Christians have always been a way that we've been out of step with our culture. So we can't change on that. We wouldn't want to change on that. But especially in the United States, we have a bad legacy of biblical orthodoxy on sexual issues being mixed up with sub-orthodoxy or a, a bad orthopraxy on racial issues. And I believe that that's one reason why things are so difficult for us right now to un, you know, disentangle um, and really are posing a new threat to leaders. And that's why you're seeing so many leaders and so many churches struggling because they just don't know how to piece it all together. We are doing our darndest at the Gospel Coalition <laughs> through the publications of Rebecca McLaughlin's The Secular Creed, The Multidirectional Leader by Trevin Wax. We are doing our best to try to help church leaders to navigate this, but I am firmly convinced that both issues are very important, but both issues are very difficult, not for the same reasons, but both must be addressed ultimately from Scripture and through the lens of the gospel if we're going to have any hope. That's really that's a really good word. And yet I think to bring it back to gospel bound for a moment, all these things are swirling and yet you know, I'm reminded by phone, by conversations I've had with my pastor who said, you know, these national conversations really are helpful to me. But he said if I stay there, I'm not going to be a good faithful pastor. So I he's you know, his his idea is like there's work in front of me to do. And there's work in my local community to do. And I feel like that's what you're focusing on this book that yes, all these yeah. things are very important, but there's Christians around the world saying there's a lot of things over here I can't control in terms of the trends and the things and who's leaving and who's not and who's falling away, who's deconverting, who's re, you know, uh reconstructing, reconstructing yeah. Yeah, all that. But I can do what's in front of me. I can help these, you know, I can uh, help the poor. I can, um, you know, volunteer here. I can start this nonprofit ministry here. I can preach the gospel faithfully in my church here. And God is still using us to, uh, you know, God is still converting people. So that's, that's exactly right, Dan. Just Trevin Wax wrote about this in relation to is, is wokeness the greatest threat to the church today? Something that you know, you, you'll hear from a number of, of leaders. And his main point was to say, the greatest threat to the gospel is whatever is the greatest threat in your church or in your heart. But our tendency to nationalize every conversation means that you may be sitting in one place where people are harboring racist attitudes but you've convinced people that only the sexual issues are a real threat and you only ever talk about that. Meanwhile, you don't ever address that sin that's in your congregation. And of course, the same things can happen on the other side. And so you're exactly right. The, the gospel bound perspective we're trying to put forward is to focus primarily on what's in front of you to take, as, as Sarah will often say, to take that next step. That's what we see consistently in these stories. First, people pray. And then second, they just take that next step. 
Um, but you, yeah, we did not profile a lot of people or any people here who confine their activism mostly to blaming other people on Twitter. Right. Which is not really in the book. accomplishing. Um, and, and, and it's so refreshing to me because, you know, people saying, what is the, what is the first next, what, what is the right next step? What can I do now? And it, and it feels like Sarah that, you know, every age, if you parachute into any age of the church, including the first century, I mean, my goodness, first Corinthians, right? Like you might pull leaders who felt like everything's going astray. Everything's terrible. Nothing good is happening. And yet you step back and say, look at this movement that happened, right? I mean, revivals happen in the midst of world war and all these different things going on. And so I really feel this is an encouraging book. I want to encourage folks to get gospel bound. We'll have links to it in the show notes to continue to read Sarah's work at the gospel coalition, just to be encouraged by what God is doing around the world. And maybe to catalyze things that if you're listening, you might get an idea or two of how you can do that in your local community. So Sarah and Colin, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I often tell my, tell people that, you know, I, I'm grateful for the, all the streams of Christianity and all the streams of evangelicalism, but I kind of describe myself as a TGC Christian um, <laughs> where I land. So I want to thankful for the work that y'all are both doing. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at, at @dandarling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash danielmdarling. I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com. Thank you for listening again to the Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters. Mm-hmm.